This is episode 403 of the AWS podcast, released on November 1st, 2020. Podcast confirmed. Welcome to the official AWS podcast. Everyone and welcome back to the AWS Podcast. I'm Alicia here with you. Great to have you back and it is a very interesting episode today. We're going to talk about the Amazon Scholars Program. To help us understand a bit about that, uh, I'm joined by Britt Allen who helps run the program. Welcome to the podcast, Britt. Thanks, Simon. It's great to be here. So tell us a little bit about the the Amazon Scholar Program and, and what it is. Absolutely. The Amazon Scholar Program started in 2018 And it was really created to enable greater collaboration between academics and Amazon. The program is designed for universities from around the world who want to test and apply their research at scale and impact customers and products. You know, academics used to have a binary choice between staying in academia and joining industry. And the Scholar Program really seeks to meet academics where they're at. We give faculty and professors the opportunity to work in part-time, often remote and flexible capacities while they continue to stay at their home institutions, researching with and and teaching the next generation of scientists. So we have scholars who have joined us from more than 45 universities from around the globe, including Germany, the UK, Canada, Japan, soon to be Spain, Australia as well. And these Mm -hmm. scholars are really joining um, Amazon as employees. They're embedded in research teams across the company in um, lots of different fields, including robotics. We have many economists, certainly folks in machine learning and AI, as well as quantum computing, which we'll hear about in a little bit. Um, But we have these scholars who are working on long-term research and they're advising on the long-term vision of a research agenda. They're rolling up their sleeves, you know, solving really specific technical challenges and bringing their knowledge of the literature that we just wouldn't have otherwise. And it's really become the foundation of university partnerships um, with many of the universities we work with, including Caltech, where where John um, currently teaches. And it really is an, an amazing program because it is global, and uh, you know this this podcast goes to people all around the world, and so. It was great to hear some of the different uh, institutions that you uh, that you support and work with for the Scholars Program. So, so you really do take a global view of this. Yes, we do, and we're we're so grateful to work with so many amazing academics and institutions from all over the world. And they're working, you know, here in the U.S. They're working in other countries as well, across, like I said, so many different domains and teams. We're so very lucky to to have them with us. And so. Thanks for that intro. So we, we have two very special guests here who I'm going to get to introduce themselves because I wouldn't be able to do a good enough job for it, quite frankly. So our first guest is Simone Severini. Welcome to the podcast, Simone. Tell us a bit about yourself. Thank you, Simon. Thanks for, for having me. Uh, so my name is Simone Severini. I work as a director of uh, quantum computing at uh, Amazon Web Services. I joined AWS in November 2018, and before that, I was um, in London, uh, United Kingdom, working as a professor of physics of information at uh, UCL, University College London. I am interested in... uh, I guess, physics and computers, uh, broadly speaking. I've done my PhD in 2004 at Bristol University in the UK. My PhD advisor was um, uh, Richard Josa. And uh, I've been, uh, during my academic career, 
in a number of places around the world as a postdoc, uh, including the University of Waterloo uh, at the Institute of Quantum Computing. And um, thanks a lot for for uh, for for this kind of invitation. You know, it's it's very it's very exciting for me actually to be here today because uh, I guess I. Um, uh, you know, John Presky that, that is following me uh, with his introduction uh, is one of my scientific heroes because I, I started studying quantum computing in his lecture notes when I was an undergrad. So it's uh, <laughs> it's interesting. That, it's a small world, isn't it? Yeah. It's a very small world. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, yeah welcome, I'm, Simone, for being on the podcast. And long-term podcast listeners will remember we, we previously had an Italian gentleman called Simone. He used to co-host the podcast with me many years back. So there's a kind of a a quantum symmetry going on here as well. It's quite, quite <laughs> in, enjoyable. And and as Simone mentioned, one of the, one of the the, the joys and um, somewhat scary parts of being ho- the host of this podcast is usually I'm by far the least qualified person on the podcast. And our next guest really raises the bar on that one. Uh, welcome to the podcast, John John Preskill. Thank you so much for joining us. Tell us about yourself. Well, thanks very much, Simon. I'm John Presco. I'm a professor of theoretical physics at the California Institute of Technology, where I've been for many years. And I am now, as of last June, an Amazon scholar. I'll be working at the AWS Center for Quantum Computing that's being established at Caltech. I've actually been interested in quantum computing for 25 years now, but this is my first opportunity to work in industry in uh, that direction, and I'm excited about it. It's great to have you on board now. Um, John, before we get into the details of sort of your involvement with with the the Scholar program, etc., a little birdie told me that you once won a bet against Stephen Hawking. Now, that sounds like an amazing uh, thing to have in the old kit bag. Tell us, is is that true? Well, it may sound amazing, but something you should know about Stephen is that although he's uh, he was a truly great scientist, he was a rather bad gambler. <laughs> so I took him to the cleaners a couple of times. Actually, I knew Stephen for, for many years. He used to uh, spend uh, some time at Caltech every year. He'd usually come for a couple of months during the harshest part of the winter in Cambridge, England where he usually is. And so I got to know him pretty well. And I learned when uh, we first met that Stephen doesn't mind if you're treating him in an irreverent way. So I would sometimes tease him and say, oh, you know, what do you think, big shot? And oh, what (laughs) makes you so sure of that, Mr. Know-it-all? And and so every once in a while with a glint in his eye, he would say, oh, yeah, you want to bet? And so we made a couple of bets official, and uh, we were astonished, uh, I think, by the amount of attention they received. I think that will be the first line of my obituary that I won a couple of bets with Stephen Hawking. <laughs> and uh, a, a mutual friend of ours, Kip Thorne, also a professor at Caltech, was also involved in these bets. And uh, Stephen uh, paid them off in a very public way. In fact, uh, in in one case, he conceded the bet at a conference where there were about 700 uh, physicists present. And the bet was about whether information can get out of a black hole. I said, yes. He said, no, it's stuck in there forever. 
And uh, the terms were that the winner was supposed to receive from the loser an encyclopedia, the idea being that you can extract information from an encyclopedia just like you can from a black hole. And Stephen knew I liked baseball, so he wanted to get me a baseball encyclopedia. But we were in Ireland. You can't get a baseball encyclopedia <laughs> in Ireland. Not. I guess they don't play baseball there. So he had to have it ordered overnight, delivered just in time to hand it to me as he was conceding the bet. And not knowing what else to do, I held it over my head, you know, like a winning gladiator. <laughs> like a trophy. Flashball popped and some of those pictures wound up, uh, you know, in the New York Times and Time magazine. And so that was my brief moment of fame. I think it's a, as good as any, that's for sure. So, so John, tell us, you know, you're, you're an, a, now a part of the Amazon Scholar program. And, and what's your experience been like? Because, you know, often moving between academia and industry is, you know, the worlds are quite different in some ways, quite similar in others. What surprised you in, in, so, in terms of that transition? Well, I wouldn't, I don't know if I would say it's surprising, but something that pleases me because I've encountered a lot of uh, people working in uh, the tech industry on quantum computing is that at AWS, the leadership of the company has a very realistic view of just how hard it's going to be to build a quantum computer. It's something that we think will be extremely impactful eventually, but it's such a big challenge. We probably aren't going to be solving very hard problems of broad interest with quantum computers anytime really soon. So we have to focus on solving very hard technical problems to set the stage for the quantum computers of the future. And, and people at, at Amazon get that and that we really have to keep our eye on those longer term goals. So I've actually been quite pleased by that. Yeah, I think long-term thinking is something in the the DNA of what we do. Simone, from your perspective, I mean, this is a long-term effort. Tell us about your experience with with the Scholar Program as part of this. Um, For us, it's been extremely important to engage with Amazon Scholars because um, for what we want to do, the Scholars are bringing expertise that is needed to execute the the strategy that we, we did uh, lay out um, as part of what we uh, we are trying to realize and um, and to me uh, indeed uh, interaction with scholars is extremely fruitful so far has been um, somehow as we expected um, we we hired if I can say we hired um, scholars that uh, were uh, uh, experts in specific sub areas uh, related to our uh, broader strategy, and and uh, I hope that uh, uh, the excitement that I have uh, of, of working together with with the scholars is also shared by by the scholars as well. We have now uh, four. Amazon scholars that joined um, between the end of 2019 and uh, 2020 so far. Uh, Lian Zhan from the of Chicago, Amir Safavineni from Stanford, Ilad Rava from Caltech, and, and John. It's a great program. Uh, you, you mentioned Caltech. I mean, John, you're obviously a professor at Caltech, and I think there's a, a broader partnership that goes on between Caltech and AWS. We get to do quite a lot together. Well, yeah, as I mentioned, there is a 
a center for quantum computing, an AWS center at Caltech. And I think this is a great thing for both Amazon and for Caltech that it's located there, I assume. Simone can validate that they wanted it to be at Caltech because of the opportunities for the people working for Amazon within the Center for Quantum Computing to interact more broadly with our quantum science community at Caltech. I think that's a great way to stimulate ideas. I think it's gonna be really exciting for our students and postdocs to have that Amazon effort occurring right in our midst. And I should say that aside from the Amazon scholars who are all first-rate scientists, uh, the ones working in this project who, who I know well, there are many outstanding scientists who are being hired and joining the Center for Quantum Computing, uh, some of whom I've, I've known for many years and I, I greatly admire for their scientific achievements. So it's great to have the opportunity to interact with and collaborate closely with those people. Yeah, bringing those great minds together yields great results. Uh, I guess, Simone, from your perspective, tell us a bit more about that, that AWS Centre for Quantum Computing and also some of the, the partnerships with, with a variety of academic institutions that you've been putting together to try and make this domain really move forward quickly. Yeah. So um, by, um, at the AWS Centre for Quantum Computing, we – we're bringing together researchers and engineers um, from Amazon with, I guess, a leading academic institution in quantum computing uh, to develop a more powerful uh, quantum computing hardware and identify uh, novel uh, quantum applications with the goal of uh, boosting, uh, I guess, catalyzing innovation uh, and discovery. Uh, across uh, um, quantum technologies. In terms of the, the current academic partnerships, as I was mentioning uh, before, we we have been working with, with Amazon scholars, specifically from, uh, from Chicago, from Stanford, and Caltech, of course. And we are uh, currently expanding uh, these partnerships, and we are in discussion with, uh, with other universities and other, other scientists that, um, that would be fantastic to work with in relation to what we are trying to achieve. So it's a, t- a tremendous, tremendous collaboration. And I guess uh, it would be remiss of me with, uh, with two tremendous thought leaders in this space to, to not ask some, some questions while I have you, have you uh, uh, at our beck and call, if it, as you were. Um, John, help us understand probably the, the hardest, easiest question I can ask you, which is where are we at with quantum computing today? Well, we're, I think the field is at an exciting stage. After a couple of decades of technical advances, we've gotten to the point where we can build a quantum computer, which is just barely able to do things, certain tasks that we think are too hard to do with the best uh, digital computers uh, that we have today, our most powerful supercomputers. And so that's opening opportunities for discovery. Uh, you know, as a physicist, I think of this quantum technology as a tool for exploration of nature. And we have the technology now so we can study many 
particles interacting strongly with one another quantum mechanically in a regime which just just hasn't been uh, accessible before. So just a quick disclaimer that we're going to apply here. When we talk about uh, the word we in some of the things, we need, we need to be clear. So, John, help us understand the context of the word we. Oh, when I say we, I just mean the community of scientists and engineers who are advancing the field of quantum science and technology. We still have a long way to go to make quantum computing truly practical. And in fact, for some time, we're going to be hampered by the fact that the technology has serious imperfections, quantum computers make lots of errors, and that limits the computations we can run on them. And so we're at a stage where we have a lot of heuristic ideas about how these near-term quantum computers can be used, maybe to solve interesting problems. We're not sure how well these things will work, but we're, we're going to experiment with uh, these devices. And as we do so, learn more about what they're capable of and how to find interesting applications. So it really is... Um, Kind of a pivotal time because it's reached the stage where we at least have the possibility of discovering uses for quantum computers which surpass what we could do with any other technology. Let's let's dive into some of some of the research you've been doing because you in 2018 you coined the word NISC, which stands for Noisy Intermediate Scale Quantum. Uh, help us understand what you were researching and, and what it helps us with. Yeah, I thought. A word was needed, and it, and it kind of caught on, which uh, was an indication that uh, it was helpful to have a term that people could kind of rally around. So, right, NISC, Noisy Intermediate Scale Quantum, uh, what does it mean? I, I meant to make a distinction between the types of quantum computers, quantum devices that we have now and are likely to be developing and improving over the next few years, as opposed to the longer term prospects for quantum computing technology. Uh, we do think that in the future, quantum computers will be able to solve a number of problems which will be very impactful, for example, by helping us discover new kinds of materials and chemical compounds and so on. But the quantum computers we have today probably aren't going to be able to solve problems like that very well because of their imperfection. So noisy is to emphasize that the hardware makes mistakes. It's not perfect hardware. But intermediate scale is meant to emphasize that at least we've reached the scale, the number of quantum bits, what we call qubits, where you can't by brute force simulate what these quantum devices are doing with ordinary computers. So potentially they can do things that we couldn't do by other means. Now, what I was trying to contrast the NISC era with is what we eventually hope to be able to do, which is to overcome the limitations coming from the imperfections in the hardware by using sophisticated error correction methods but those are very expensive in terms of the overhead that you need. You'll need more qubits, more gates than we're likely to have for a while. And so for the time being, we won't really be able to use these powerful error correction ideas and, and we'll have to uh, do the best we can with the hardware that we have now. 
and that hardware, to be fair, is beautiful looking. I mean, it's very, uh, it's almost cyberpunk in its uh, in its design. But Simone, let me let me ask you, uh, I guess, a, a related question is, you know, we've got r- all these smart minds, we've got access to more technology than we've ever had before in human history. Yet this is really, really hard. What is it about quantum computing that means it, it's hard and is is likely to take a long time to really develop? I guess um, you see quantum computing is an area that requires um, uh, lots of different expertise. It is an area that is composed by many uh, sub areas, um, theoretical computer science, for example, that has to do with analysis of the complexity of algorithms and um, physics, uh, information theory. And, and a, a number of aspects that have to do with engineering. Now, you see, traditionally, uh, there is this uh, neat distinction between uh, what is theory and what is experiments. Uh, progress in quantum computing requires uh, a uh, very close interaction between all these different areas and, and, and many people with different type of expertise. So I guess the, the, the complexity of this is uh, uh, is I like the complexity for for advancing the area. Of course, each of the sub areas is advancing uh, independently, and there are multiple links. But uh, to move this forward, uh, maybe uh, this is more a, 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 a sociology of science consideration or or administration of science consideration. But I see that the complexity is definitely an obstacle. Then, of course, thinking about uh, why it's difficult to beat a quantum computer, then this is a exquisitely technical question. And uh, and we can, of course, discuss this as well. And, and John is, is definitely an excellent person to, to give an answer to this in case. So, so John, so yeah, help, us, could, help us with if that. If I could yeah. jump in, Simon. Um, sure. So I think there's, there's really a, a fundamental difficulty, which has to do with the difference between the way we encode information in a quantum computer and the way we do in in ordinary computers. With ordinary bits, you know, like coins that are either heads or tails, everybody can look at a coin and they can all agree that it's heads. And after I've looked at the coin and seen that it's heads, you know, you can look and it's heads and everybody uh, looking at it doesn't change what it is. It's either heads or tails. But with these quantum bits, with qubits, just observing the state of a qubit changes it, damages it. It's a manifestation of the uncertainty principle of quantum mechanics that quantum information has this very delicate character. And so that means that if I want to operate a quantum computer, I have to keep the information that's being processed almost perfectly isolated from the outside world, because even if no human is looking at it, it's interacting with other things, which in effect observes the state of the quantum computer. And that robs it of its quantum magic, where it gets its power. So we have to keep these qubits very well isolated, and it's very difficult to do in any laboratory setting. So one of the hardware approaches, for example, is to use electrical circuits for quantum computing, in some ways similar to the electrical circuits in our ordinary microchips. But because of this difficulty that we have to keep the qubit so well isolated, we run at extremely low temperature, 20 millikelvin, you know, 20 
thousandths of a degree above absolute zero. And even that's not enough. You have to make the materials very pure because if there's any dirt in the material, that can disturb the qubits and so on. So it's only after a lot of effort and improvements in materials and design of the qubits and how we control the qubits that we've been able to, to reach the stage that we have now. And that continues to be a challenge going forward. And it's a real limitation currently on what quantum computing can do. And that's really what I meant by noisy in noisy intermediate scale quantum. And so, John, if you, if you sort of cast your mind forward and think about what the, what the future could look like, I know it's always, always difficult, but if, if, the, if the noise goes away, if you, if you sort of have that access to all the, the capabilities that you can imagine, what would quantum computing be used for? Because I think, I think one of the important distinctions is it's not for everything. It's for a very specific sort of broad set of problems to solve for. Help us understand that potential in the long term. Well, first of all, I think in all honesty, nobody really knows. It's a very different way of processing information than anything that we're used to. We have theoretical arguments that it's powerful in the sense that we can do things with the quantum computer that we couldn't efficiently do with ordinary computers. But what the most important applications will be that'll really have an impact on people's lives, we, we can only guess now. I think of the applications that people are currently aware of, what's likely to have a big impact is the ability to simulate quantum physics with a quantum computer. This is sort of its natural application. In fact, uh, a colleague of mine at Caltech, Richard Feynman, a very famous physicist, proposed already um, 40 years ago that if you want to simulate quantum physics, there are good reasons why we can't do it with ordinary computers when we're talking about systems that are very complex with many particles interacting with one another. And so the way to do that would be to build a quantum computer. And after 40 years, we're just getting to the stage where we're starting uh, to be able to do it. Now, why do you want to simulate quantum systems? Well, you would like to be able to make kind of a, if you like a wind tunnel to try out uh, new kinds of materials in a computer, which are too hard to simulate with ordinary computers, you could search for uh, new kinds of catalysts that could be used to speed up chemical reactions. Applications like that can really have an impact on human health, on how we, uh, what sources of energy uh, we can use, like tasks like capturing solar power, uh, sustainability can be affected. So I think that impact is eventually going to be felt. Very likely, there are going to be many other applications that we just haven't conceived yet. I really think we've only scratched the surface so far of understanding what the potential applications of quantum computing are. It's super exciting. And, and so given that, what role do you see AWS playing in the course of quantum computing innovation? Well, as I said, I think AWS has a very long-term view, and we need that in the field. You know, it's been interesting for me because I've been following quantum computing for about 25 years to watch what's been happening lately. And there's been a, a very 
sharp ramping up of interest and investment from tech companies and venture capitalists and so on in the last few years because the promise of quantum computing is becoming more widely appreciated. And of course, that's a great thing. That investment accelerates progress. It attracts young people to the field. It generates excitement and, and that's all good. But inevitably, uh, there are also some uh, unrealistic expectations that arise, particularly about timescales, at least in my opinion. A lot of people have become overly optimistic about the timescale over which quantum computers are really going to have a big effect on society. I don't expect it's going to happen in five or 10 years. I think it's going to be longer than that. And that means that people really need to be looking at solving the very hard technical problems that are going to impact the way industry is doing things, you know, 10 or 20 years from now. And I think AWS is one company that sees quantum computing that way, and they're going to focus on solving those hard problems, as will uh, continue to be the case also in the universities, where we tend to th think about uh, about the longer term instead of you know what you can do in the in the next five years. And it's you know within the tech industry. Um, that kind of long-term thinking, at least in my experience, is, is relatively uncommon. But for this particular area, it's going to be vitally important. Yeah. And so, Simone, from your perspective, I mean, you're, you're directing our efforts here. What, what do you think is some of the key contributions that, that AWS can make? Well, I think that uh, um, it's important for us to uh, catalyze uh, discovery across the quantum computing community and uh, provide to our customers the tools that they need in order to engage with quantum computing. Of course, setting the right expectations, but um, our customers uh, think that uh, quantum computing is a promising technology, and they have been asking us to come up with uh, solutions for, for them to to start engaging. And recently we made available a general availability, Amazon Bracket uh, service. So general availability means that everyone can use it, uh, log in their uh, AWS console and, um, and work with it. Bracket is the uh, notation for quantum states um, in quantum mechanics, by the way. <laughs> um, the service is uh, a fully managed service that uh, allow customers to program, uh, to simulate, um, simulate of course up to a certain size because then uh, it, it would be impossible uh, to simulate every quantum computer out there after a, a certain size to simulate and to uh, operate um, quantum computers that are uh, built by some uh, some of our hardware partners and are accessible via AWS. Um, I think that this is um, an important initiative because uh, uh, if our goal is indeed to catalyze discovery across the quantum computing community, uh, Amazon Bracket is uh, 
an opportunity to generate more activity, uh, to build uh, broader communities, and to have more people, um, both in academia and industry, engaging in quantum computing, learning, exploring, experimenting, and hopefully uh, discovering something interesting that will, uh, uh, will accelerate uh, the trajectory of the field. And I think the point's been made really strongly from from both of you that this is a, a long-term endeavour. And so, John, from your perspective, you know, for, for some of our younger listeners today, how would you recommend that they get involved in the field today if they're interested in, in a long-term career in this, in this area? Well, first of all, there are a lot of online resources. And in fact, there are uh, opportunities for students to get uh, get access to some of the uh, the cloud computing resources and there are tutorials there if you want to get some kind of hands-on quantum computing experience uh, you can uh, use those resources to experiment with quantum computing to try a lot of things out that incidentally I I just wanted to uh, reiterate what Simone was saying about how important it is for people in the near term to be trying things on these platforms because we don't have a very clear understanding of what quantum computers and particularly these near term ones are capable of doing. We have heuristic ideas, but we got to try them out and uh, improve them. And the only way to do that is to give people access to these platforms. Now, beyond that, if you're a student, uh, as is true in many areas of science and physics in particular, if you're going to acquire some mastery of a subject, there are mathematical prerequisites that are essential or at least very helpful. And in the case of quantum computing, the the mathematics, which is the key to understanding it, is what we call linear algebra, which some students learn in high school, many don't learn it in Till they're in college, but it's actually um, mathematics that is is fairly accessible to someone who you know has some background in in algebra. It's a lot easier to get into the mathematics of quantum computing than it is in in other areas of physics. At least some other areas. You know, I used to do theoretical particle physics, where it required a lot more study to get to the point where you could understand cutting edge issues in the field and quantum computing at this stage, it's easier to do that. And I guess another piece of advice I would give is um, don't be discouraged if you find it confusing because you know all of us who work in this field are confused a lot of the time. And that's just part <laughs> of uh, developing and understanding science and technology, it, it, it means you just have to keep at it and eventually uh, a deeper understanding will uh, will emerge. It's, it's kind of how you know you're doing it right. <laughs> if you're confused yeah. and then you figure it out. <laughs> hey, John, question for you as a, as a sort of, you know, long-term uh, practitioner, academic, um, you know, one of one a few famous uh, famous bets in your time as well. What would you say has been the best piece of advice you've received in your career so far? Well, I'm not sure, but when I was um, around the stage I was completing my PhD, I worked with a slightly more senior colleague who was a little more 
acquainted with, uh, you know, the way the uh, academic world works. And he gave me some advice, which I often think of even today. He said, you know, you never do yourself any harm by giving other people too much credit. And, you know, I guess part of the reason I keep coming back to that is like like many uh, scientists and people in academia or in other areas of life, I'm uh, competitive. I'm a bit arrogant sometimes and kind of ambitious. And I, I take pride in the things I achieve. And sometimes maybe it bothers me when I think uh, things don't get the recognition they, sub- they should uh they deserve, but I think the um, the best response to that is just to make sure other people get the credit that they deserve, and uh, that I think makes uh, makes things better for everybody. Indeed, it does. Indeed, it does. Now, how can our listeners get in touch with you both? Where should they be reaching out? Now, if people want to learn more about AWS quantum computing or get in touch, what, what should they do? I'm on Twitter. So if you if you want to know what I'm doing, uh, follow me on Twitter. It's it, if you can remember my last name, which I, admittedly is a somewhat unusual name. Uh, that's my Twitter handle at Preskill P R E S K I L L, and um, I often tweet about things that that I find interesting that are going on relating to quantum computing and and other things in physics. So. Uh, in many cases, I try to point to articles I've seen that might be of interest to a broader group of people. So that, that's one way. And Samana, from your perspective, how do our listeners learn more about AWS quantum computing? Um, Simon, there is lots of uh, great literature uh, out there. Um, it depends, of course, if you are leaning um, more towards mathematics, uh, more towards physics uh, or computer science. Um, to start, I guess, hands on, uh, uh, I'd suggest to, to visit uh, our website, uh, aws.amazon.com slash bracket, and, and you can get a feeling about uh, what it means to to um, program and, and operate an actual quantum computer. That's a, a great tip. And we did actually record a, uh, a podcast about Amazon Bracket and it's spelled B-R-A-K-E-T. Uh, recently we recorded that with Richard Moulds, who's the GM for Amazon Bracket. So a great way to dive deep on that topic too. Hey, Zamona, thanks so much for sharing your experiences and your perspective with us today. And look, thanks to you, Sam. Thank you. And John, thanks so much for you. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Uh, glad to have you on board. And thanks, everyone, for listening. We do love to get your feedback. AWS podcast at Amazon.com is the place to do it. And until next time, keep on building.